You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual going to start this week's show with a couple of callbacks. First, a call I made, something I saw coming early in the pandemic, and then a call a listener made. What did I see coming? I made a prediction based on what we knew about transmission in March of 2020 that glory holes were going to make a comeback. And I was right. A couple of months after I said on the podcast, we could be entering a second golden age of glory holes. Health departments across North America were urging people who couldn't go without dick to get the dick they needed at glory holes. A lot of people got a lot of things wrong at the start of the pandemic from the NIH and the CDC telling us we didn't need to wear masks wrong to the then president of the United States telling us it was all going to go away like magic wrong. But I got glory holes right and I am never going to stop spiking that football and no ulterior motive. My dick has never gone into a glory hole. I wasn't promoting glory holes. My mouth has never been on the other side of one or even anywhere near one. I like dick, but ghost dick, disembodied dick, not for me. Another call made early in the pandemic, a listener had a call that he wanted to make. Well, more of a dream he had. With all of us locked in our apartments and houses, with everyone having been ordered to stop hooking up with strangers, with bars and clubs closed, Did we not have a chance, a rare opportunity to eradicate sexually transmitted infections? Not all of them. Obviously, herpes, HPV, and HIV weren't going to disappear during the one or two months, three tops it was going to take to bring the pandemic under control. But gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, if everyone who'd been recently exposed stayed home until they developed symptoms and then sought treatment and took their meds before getting out there again— After the one or two months it was going to take to bring the pandemic under control, three months tops, we could eradicate three of the biggest STIs. Yeah, that didn't happen. STI rates at their highest numbers in U.S. ever, The Guardian reported on Friday. There was a slight dip in STI rates at the start of the pandemic for obvious reasons, but that dip didn't last from The Guardian. Experts have called the rebound of STI cases and the projected increase in infections the result of a perfect storm of sluggish STI testing, changing behaviors as pandemic restrictions are lifted nationwide, and persistent problems around STI education, falling condom use, and a weak public healthcare infrastructure. So, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen. We didn't eradicate STIs during the pandemic for the same reasons we have the lowest life expectancies compared to other wealthy countries and the highest rates of avoidable deaths and suicide and diabetes and double the maternal death rate of other wealthy countries, all while spending more on healthcare than any other wealthy country. It's almost like we're doing it wrong. I'll admit I allowed myself to hope that my caller might be right, but I guess I momentarily forgot where I live. People without health insurance or people with inadequate health insurance, people without easy access to primary care, they weren't able to access the doctors they needed or get the meds they needed at the best of times. With people out of work and trapped at home and broke, yeah, 
no way were we going to catch all the infections that had already happened before the pandemic. Lots of people with STIs don't have symptoms or don't realize, for example, the sore on their penis is syphilis and not something they did to themselves, beating off too much, home alone during the pandemic. And then the sore goes away and they forget about it, but they're still infected and still infectious. If people had easy access to docs and meds, if people had regular STI screenings and could access treatment easily, we wouldn't need a once-in-a-century Hail Mary pandemic to bring down our STI rates. We wouldn't need that if we had what other wealthy countries have, which is healthcare for all. But let's not lose sight of one of those contributing factors, the Guardian cites, changing behaviors as pandemic restrictions are lifted. That's a reference to the whoring 20s, which have arrived. Have fun out there, everybody, but be responsible. If you can get screened, get screened. If you've got an STI, let your partners know, get yourself treated and wait until you're cured and can't infect someone else or you're on your meds and your viral load is undetectable. If we're talking about HIV and you can't then infect anyone else. Or wait until you're on your meds if we're talking about herpes and far, far less likely to infect someone else. Turns out the pandemic lockdowns weren't the magic bullet that could take down those STIs, the big three, the other big three. We're going to need a decent and just and humane healthcare system to do that. And since we're not going to have that in the U.S. anytime soon, it's more important than ever that we look out for ourselves and our sex partners to the extent we can. Test, treat, disclose. And finally, before we get to your calls, we got a lot of feedback about our sex success stories. Turns out half of you hate them and half of you love them. It's generally not a great programming choice to start a show with something that half of your listeners hate before getting to the stuff, the cues, the A's, the guests that everybody seems to love. So we're probably going to phase out the success stories. But I still think it's important to hear every once in a while from people who aren't having problems only hearing from people having problems skews the sample, skews perceptions and people's expectations. I mean, if you only hear about threesomes that end in calamity, you're going to think all threesomes end in calamity. So I'd like to run the occasional call from a listener who doesn't have a question about the threesome they just had because it was a success and they just want to spike the football themselves. But we'll run those calls every once in a while, not every week. Okay, coming up on today's show on the Micro and Magnum Savage Lovecast, my mean lesbian boss, Tracy, drops in to talk about lesbian haircuts. And on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love, more calls, more questions, more guests, no ads. Amp Pup Amp, co-host of What's the Safe Word, the YouTube channel, returns to talk about dog training with us, human dog training. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old woman living in New York City. I got married three years ago at the courthouse to a wonderful man who I love very much. And we just recently, two weeks ago, had our actual wedding celebration. We couldn't have it before because of COVID and I was moving to New York from Florida, etc. And a week before our wedding, he planned to go out down to Medellin uh, with his buddies for a bachelor party. And, of course, sex work is very common there. And I was aware that some activity with 
sexual workers was going to be going on during that week. And I was fine with that. I didn't have a problem. It was a don't ask, don't tell situation. In fact, I joked with him and said, my only uh, request is do not get COVID and do not get anybody pregnant. And we kind of laughed about it. And we went our separate ways. And we got together after his bachelor party. We had the wedding. It was fantastic. However, since we've been back to New York, I've been having this, like, very strange feeling that I can't shake off. And it's not that I'm upset that he was with sexual workers. It's kind of like I feel that he got a pass to enjoy himself and go and have sex with other people and meet other women and have a blast with his friends. And I was essentially with two girlfriends at home getting drunk and having a night of laughs. I thought about it and I have this feeling like I kind of want to get revenge of sorts. Is that normal? What kind of revenge? is? Why is this feeling coming out right now? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. You may not have realized it then, but you gave your now husband permission to do something, to mess around with somebody else in a controlled circumstance, that you would like permission to do yourself, mess around with somebody else in a controlled circumstance. And rather than just asking for that, or rather than even putting that on the table, when you gave him his DADT permission slip, when you gave him that hall pass, your subconscious mind, I think, is framing it as some necessary step to even the scales, to take revenge. He got to do this thing that is, I guess, regarded by many people as quote-unquote wrong, but kind of winked at, the bachelor party, fucking around with sex workers – And you didn't get to do a similarly wrong thing. And some part of you, some part of your erotic imagination, I think, has latched onto that. And you would like to do something wrong, something that you're not supposed to do, but with his permission, in the same way he got to do that wrong thing with your permission. He got to do that wrong thing knowing that if it got back to you somehow, you weren't going to dump him. You weren't going to call off – well, I guess the wedding had already happened. You weren't going to call off the celebration of the wedding or divorce him. You'd like the same, for your erotic autonomy, you'd like the same permission. I would be on guard against framing this as retaliatory. Maybe that's just something small and petty that you keep to yourself if you talk to him about this. And I think you should talk to him about this. Don't frame it as revenge. I gave you permission to do this thing, and therefore now I get to do something that maybe he's not comfortable with you doing. That would be unfair, I I think, on his part. But... You didn't frame it for him as, okay, I'm going to give you permission to go do this. Here's your hall pass, DADT, on the condition that I get the same from you. So you're going to have to negotiate that with him retroactively. Maybe he's going to have a hang-up about it. Maybe it's going to take him a little bit of time to get there, but I think he can get there. I hope he can get there. But don't frame it as retaliation. Frame it as desire. You're going to want, every once in a while, you're going to want to take a walk on the wild side too, yourself. You regret not having a male stripper at your bachelorette party. And so you're going to schedule that. And you want to make sure that he's okay with it before you do. Just like he made sure 
that you were okay with what he was going to do before he did it. Hey, Dan. I have been dabbling with water sports lately. Actually, I like to get fucked until I piss. Um, the thing is, doing this in the shower, doing this in the bathroom gets to be a little tiring. I bought some foam pads to lay down on the ground to kind of make it a little bit more comfortable. But I want to be able to lay in the bed and get fucked and just piss a little bit. And I tried just using towels to sop it up. And I still found myself having to get up and like change the towels out. I don't know if I want like a plastic sheet to lay on. I don't know if I want a kiddie pool. I just want to be comfortable and wet at the same time. Oh, and I should add, I don't really enjoy being wet either. I don't want to touch it. I just want it to kind of go away magically. I don't know if I could get maybe a drop cloth. I'm thinking of going to the Home Depot, but I'm not sure the employees could handle that question. So you want to be covered in piss, but not covered in piss. You want to get all wet, be comfortable and wet, but not actually be wet or lay around in your piss or have to jump up and change the towels. I don't know how to help you. Not a miracle worker here. You're basically asking, is there a way for you to walk on this water? And there isn't. Uh, There is a product designed primarily for women who squirt. Some women who squirt squirt a great deal a female ejaculate out, can really soak the sheets, can soak into the mattress. There's a thing called a fascinator that you can purchase, the fascinator throw by Liberator. It is expensive, though. There are alternatives. You can get washable underpads on Amazon for your mattresses for less money. They're less attractive. They look a little bit more institutional than a fascinator throw does. But both of them, the washable underpads, the Fascinator throws can be tossed in the washing machine when you're done, and they're absorbent enough and plastic on one side, I believe, so it doesn't soak through to the sheets or the mattress, uh, that your mattress and sheets won't get soaked. But I don't see how you avoid getting soaked if the goal here is to piss all over yourself when you're getting fucked. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-something-year-old woman living on the West Coast and calling in with a question about my parents. They have been married for over 35 years, and at this point, their relationship is more one of convenience because it would just be too difficult to separate and also too difficult to make sure that they're staying alive and healthy on their own. And so at this point, especially my mom is just trying to figure out a way to stay married and stay sane. This becomes an issue with basically every holiday or birthday when my dad would love a greeting card from her and she's not able to find ones that have the messages that she's trying to share. There's nothing of a gushy romantic feeling she has for him at this point and it definitely is not about how sexy they find each other. I'm wondering if you or any of our listeners have any recommendations for greeting cards that are not the greeting card industry of greeting cards. I, I'm sure there's others out there who would love this sort of thing. Are you really so sure? Are you really sure there's lots of other people out there who might be interested in this question? Because, yeah, I don't think so. I think that most other people out there listening to the sound of your voice, caller, having just listened to the sound of your voice, now listening to the sound of my voice, are aware of the blank greeting card phenomenon, that there are blank greeting cards for sale. I believe the greeting card industrial complex 
cranks out probably as many blank greeting cards as they do mushy gushy greeting cards. They're usually for sale right by the mushy gushy ones. Get a blank one. Get a whole crate of blank ones. Well, probably not a whole crate. Parents have been together 35 years. Your mother probably doesn't need that many more greeting cards to get your father through birthdays, anniversaries, and holidays between now and his or her death. But get her a few. Get her a few packs of blank greeting cards, and then she can write down something from the heart. And if her heart is empty, if she's just not feeling it, if there's nothing nice she wants to say to your father, well, that's where the pre-scripted, pre-written, gushy greeting cards come in. She can just give him something that says something that she doesn't quite feel or doesn't feel anymore and let your father bask in the glow of that bullshit greeting card that he'd like to receive on those special days. But yeah, I've never gotten a question like this before. I don't think I'll ever get a question like yours ever again, because I don't think this is really an issue that anybody else, but your mother and father, if this question is for real face. Hi, Dan, 27 year old gay man living in Portland. Uh, I've been with my partner about, Two and a half, almost three years, and our sex life has pretty much plateaued. For instance, last week I had to beg him for a simple blowjob, and getting sex is very difficult these days. We're not connecting as much as we were, and he's kind of chalked it up to having a low libido and a, I guess, just a low sex drive. He just thinks that this is kind of the name of the game when you're this far in a relationship. This is both he and I's longest relationship this is only my this is my only second gay relationship and this is probably his fifth or sixth um i think it's important to note that we're both bottoms but he's been the top in our relationship um and so i've feared for a long time that he's not getting enough from me or it's made me feel inadequate in more ways than one he doesn't let me top him really the last time i did was Gosh, months ago, my birthday is in January, and the last time I really got to play with this fool was back in January um, during my birthday. But aside from that, he doesn't really let me play with it, and I know he used to date a guy with a pretty pretty big penis, and that's always been an area of insecurity for me. So we've talked about breaking up. We've talked about sleeping with other people, and I think we're both too insecure to handle the jealousy and the the things that come with it. Um, I've suggested getting him on some sort of like erectile dysfunction medication. He may be on board with that, but he thinks that he's going to have to take it all the time because he's 31. So our relationship has kind of become not tumultuous. We have a good relationship. We communicate well. We just got a dog, and we talk about living together next year. However... The sex is just not up to par and I'm not getting what I need. Oh my God, I was so relieved when I got to the part of your question, your call, where you said you hadn't yet moved in with each other. Please don't move in with each other. I'm sorry to say I think this relationship is doomed. If you're both too insecure to have an open relationship and you're incapable of meeting each other's sexual needs or he's incapable of meeting your rather reasonable sexual needs, the last time he let you top him, was January, nine or 10 months ago, and you had to beg for blowjobs, and you're two and a half, three years, almost three years, you say, into this relationship, yeah, that's that's a much steeper drop-off in desire and passion than most couples experience. 
You say also that your boyfriend's had five or six relationships. Well, I think I know the reason why your boyfriend cycles through relationships pretty quickly. If his attitude towards sex is that, you know, desire plummets, desire tanks after a couple of years, well, then he's going to cycle in and out of a lot of relationships. He's going to have a lot of short-term relationships that could be successful short-term relationships if he knew himself better. If he entered them saying to people, I'm good for a year or two, and then it's open or out. It has to be open to get our sexual needs met because after two years, I'm not going to be interested in you sexually anymore. Or it's going to have to be over and we're going to have to move on to new partners. If indeed that's what's going on here, he's a phrase sexual. That term has come up a lot lately. Maybie your boyfriend is a phrase sexual and he hasn't embraced that identity, that self-understanding and isn't conducting himself and running his relationships accordingly. If on the other hand, the issue is that you're both bottoms and he's sexually unsatisfied in this relationship, well, there's a way that two bottoms or two tops can be in a successful long-term committed relationship. And that's to verse it up if they want to stay together and be monogamous, or that's to open it up to others, you know, to the occasional guest top or occasional guest bottom, as the case may be. ED meds, not the cure you think they're going to be. ED meds are something that men take when they are horny and they can't get hard or they're having difficulty obtaining and sustaining an erection, as they say in the ED ads on cable news. You don't take ED meds to get horny. You take ED meds because you are horny and you want the heart on to follow through with that horniness, to drive that horniness home, to make that horny point to your partner that you desire them. The desire is there. The meds don't induce desire. They enable performance. So getting your bottom boyfriend on ED meds is not going to make your bottom boyfriend want to bottom for you more than your bottom boyfriend wants to bottom for you now, which is not very much. So you two are going to have to get a little brutally honest with each other. He's going to have to answer some tough questions that you're going to put to him about why he's been in six shortish, long-termish relationships and why all of those relationships ended. And if they all ended because after a year and a half or two years, he loses all desire for the person that he's in a relationship with and the sex stops and that's why he got dumped all those times or he had to end the relationships all those times because he didn't want to meet their needs. Okay, well, then you know that this is at an end. But if he's sexually dissatisfied because he's a bottom, you're a bottom, you're topping him, it's not great for him, whatever the issue might be, if he's really sexually dissatisfied and you aren't able to meet each other's needs but you want to be together and you do love each other, well, then you're going to have to bring in special guest stars who are capable of meeting needs that he can't for you and that you can't for him. And sometimes people have a problem with that. They look at that and say, oh, okay, well, we should obviously break up if we can't meet each other's Sexual needs, basic, major sexual needs. We have to end the relationship. Well, yeah, you can think of it that way. And, and that may be how most people would approach it. Most people would end the relationships. I've known people, though, loving, wonderful couples and long-term relationships who couldn't meet basic, fundamental sexual needs. And they had other partners for that. And that was one way, if you think about it a little differently, that the two guys in a relationship like that or a man and a woman in a relationship like that were able to meet each other's needs by joyfully and happily allowing for the outsourcing of those needs. Sometimes you meet a partner's needs by letting someone else meet your partner's need. But if you guys can't do that, if you can't wrap your heads around that, ah, yeah, this is doomed. Please, please don't make what to me right now 
seems to be an inevitable breakup harder or more complicated than it's already going to be by making the mistake of moving in with each other at this stage. Hey, Dan. I know you don't usually cover topics like haircuts, but hear me out here. I told you when I first came out and my extended religious family was being stupid, and essentially you told me that, you know, I, I was afraid of offending them, and, and you said they should be afraid of offending me, and that times have changed, and we, you know, I need to live my life, essentially, which I really appreciate, and I took with me, and now I'm at a different sort of point where I've come into my lesbian identity and presenting more masculine and... I still have long hair. <laughs> I really want to cut it off, but I'm terrified of doing my first, like, butch psych haircut. And I am, like, hovering over the book appointment button on the Internet, and I cannot bring myself to press the button. And I'm just terrified of what people will think. I'm terrified of being a cliche. I'm terrified of, of being so, quote-unquote, obviously gay. And... <laughs> in every space that I go to. And I think I am already obviously gay, but it's just there's something about it that is really hard. And I just need a Dan pep talk again. (laughs) I don't think you need a pep talk from me about a butch dyke haircut. I think you need a pep talk from my mean lesbian boss who just got a refresher on her butch dyke haircut. Hey, Tracy, how are you? Good. How are you? I did just get a refresher. (laughs) Tracy and I work together on Hump. Uh, Tracy produces Hump. Uh, Everybody out there, Tracy's going to want me to mention that you should go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets for Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 4, to catch Hump 2021 in a theater near you, and to find out how to make and submit a film for Hump 2022. With that out of the way, I tried to call you earlier, and I caught you and your cliche lesbian haircut at the dog park, which is a whole other lesbian cliche. Do you have any words of wisdom or comfort for this woman who'd like to cut her hair short but is worried about looking like a lesbian? Oh, man, I will try. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think the big point that I took away from uh, your call was you mentioned that you're going to be cliche if you get this butch dyke haircut. But do you know what else is cliche? Lesbians who really want butch dyke haircuts who don't get butch dyke haircuts. Because <laughs> they don't want to look like lesbian. Or do they want to look like the kind of lesbian who got a butch dyke haircut? How is this not is, internalized homophobia? Like, I worry about looking like exactly what I am. Like, that is also a look or genre of lesbian. And, and it's also just as obviously gay in most cases, just with non-butch dyke haircuts. You know, so in, you might as well just go with the haircut that feels good to you and that suits you best. I don't want to terrorize you or, or, or upset you, but I am right now looking at a photo of you on my phone in a majorette <laughs> outfit with long flowing hair down past your shoulders. There was some point where you got your long hair cut off and got the butch lesbian haircut that I've always known you to have. What was that point like for you? Can you project <laughs> yourself back into what this woman is experiencing right now as she is trying to make that appointment to get the dyke haircut that at some point you had to make that same appointment. I I think so. I don't know if I made an appointment or if I just did it myself. I know exactly what photo you're referring to. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you just randomly like to send that to me every once in a while out of the blue. The difference between that photo and my hair now is 
I look like as of three yesterday, 3 p.m., I was like drafted into the military. So there's a lot of hair missing from that photo now. But I think what I did is I don't actually remember a drastic moment of when I just cut it all off or shaved it. I think I might have just gone like shorter and shorter and shorter until it just was like made sense. Because that photo that you're referring to where I have long hair, that hair is only down because I had to do a photo for school, you know, and my parents probably threatened me and I better, you know, better put my hair down outside of that photo. My hair was in this like gross bun, like every day, you know, I was the other cliche lesbian that just never got the butch dyke haircut and always threw it up. And eventually you just, I think we just went shorter and shorter until it wasn't there anymore, which was a nice safe way to do it. Let's talk as long time out. Queer is totally comfortable. <laughs> we are, I think this sense that people sometimes have where it's okay that I'm gay or it's okay that I'm a dyke, but you know, there's something not okay or I'm not fully comfortable with being obviously gay or obviously a dyke, which is weird. You know, people who are out, people who are same-sex relationships, people who are out at work, out to their family, out to all their friends will still worry about the judgment of, I guess, some stranger on the bus or the threat of violence from some stranger on the bus if they're too obvious. And yet it's who you want to be. It's who you are. You probably, if you know, you're the kind of lesbian who wants to get all her hair cut off, you probably look like a lesbian or look like a dyke, obviously, even without the short hair. But right. you, but but it's true. Actually, I'm reasoning myself into a corner here. It is true that sometimes a, a woman with very short hair gets grief for it from other people policing their gender expression, and not just homophobic policing, but sometimes transphobic policing. Have you ever encountered that as a woman with short hair? Oh my God. Are you kidding? I live like three minutes from a Home Depot that I, ju- I go to. Like I experience this like every day. I just, I think the butch dyke haircut is basically a sign that you always wear above your head. That's like says I'm gay, you know, and, and you might get called dyke more and you might offend more people for whatever, you know, whatever reason, but you're, you're also going to make it way easier for other lesbians who are into butch dykes hit on you at a bar. You know, That's it's so like, important. I, strike a blow for lesbian visibility. That's how we fight each other. Um, I just, I think the question, obviously, it's not like if you should do it. It's just why are you having so much trouble actually making that decision to cut your hair? And and I think to dive deeper into it, it really feels like if you're having that much trouble, it, maybe it's really because you are having such a hard time of letting go of a part of yourself. There is some kind of like loss there and some grief of this past self that was you. And, and then you, and then you can't really hide behind your long hair anymore. Like when your Trumpy uncle comes to Christmas dinner or you run into some, you know, Trumpy guy at, at Home Depot, you can't just hide behind your long hair and pretend that you're not the butch dyke that you really are. And so you lose a little bit of safety there and it does make you a little stronger. I think, I mean, you know, you stop putting up with shit more because you kind of have to. (laughs) It's interesting though. Sometimes you, you know, it's really letting go of a little bit of camouflage and, Sometimes it's the people who are seeing through the camouflage who can be more aggressive. And often when you've let go of the camouflage and you've moved out into the world with a kind of like, yeah, I'm a dyke, fuck you attitude, you scare off people who might otherwise like think you're hiding and, and, and mm-hmm. you might, and might then feel empowered to terrorize you a little bit because you're clearly afraid of attracting attention and therefore they're going to give you that attention. But if you're like, come for me, come at me, they get the sense that, all right, this person is ready. And this person isn't someone I want to fuck with because they're not afraid of me. That's what that haircut says. 
Right. And, and there's, there's baby steps into that, you know, phase. Like I have plenty of queer friends who aren't ready to commit to cutting all their hair off, but they do have the, you know, there's certain looks that lesbians do to have like to live in both worlds. On my show hosted by a gay man, are you telling this woman to get a mullet? <laughs> oh God, no, never. No offense to anyone who has mullets, but <laughs> it's not, <laughs> I'm not promoting them. Actually, I think, I, I think mullets are hot on the right dude, just like everything. I mean, pirate <laughs> shirts are hot on the right dude. Of course, mullets are hot on the right dude. Um, one last thought about hair, though, um, and help me out here. I also wear my hair very, very short. I've heard it grows back. Right. It grows back. There's, you know, take a chance. I think it'll feel really liberating for you to just cut it off and do it and and just see, you know, it'll grow back. And maybe just start a little bit. Just shave one half of your head and flip your long hair over that. And then you can kind of flip it back and forth depending on where you're at, you know. And then maybe if it feels good to get recognized as your butch dyke self with your short sides and cut the other side off, you know, there's no rules. Let's do whatever you want. Take it from my mean lesbian boss, Tracy. Thank you for jumping on the phone and letting me terrorize you this afternoon. I appreciate it. Anytime. Hi, Dan. A 38-year-old gay man living in New York City. I've been in a relationship with a great guy for coming up on two years. And we have a pretty great sex life. Uh, Everything is going really well. And we're we're happy with each other. Uh, We've discussed, or mainly he's discussed in some terms opening up our relationship to threesomes and the occasional play with another guy. It sounds great to me and I'm all for it. And I, to be honest, would prefer an open relationship, but I have this hesitation and I'm hoping you can help me get around it. I am divorced. My ex-husband toward the end of our relationship started asking for and setting up threesomes and even foursomes and As soon as they were over, he would slut shame me and blame me for causing us to be in that situation and telling me that they were only uh, interested in him, but because I was his husband, that I had to be a part of it. Um, He insisted I had to be a part of it and that they truly weren't interested in me physically or anything, but just kind of did what they needed to do in order to have sex with him. He set up all these things, he coordinated everything, and I was never allowed to really have any say in that. So I'm hesitant. I've been burned. I'm afraid that if I do have uh, start having threesomes with my partner now, that the same thing is going to happen. And it's made me really question whether or not it's a good idea. I'm afraid that he's going to have the same reaction and that it's just going to be ugly and we're going to start fighting and there's going to be jealousy, a jealousy that he isn't expecting. And I've seen, I've used my words as I've heard you recommend to many other people and told him this, told him my concerns. And he says, Oh no, I won't, I won't have that kind of response. I won't, I won't be jealous, but, but Dan, I've been through this and I know the kind of jealousy that this can incite. I don't think he knows what he's in for on his first main relationship. He's had many hookups before, but he's never had a threesome with a partner. Don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want his heart to get hurt, but I also am trying to be realistic about this and approach it in a way that we can do this successfully. Wow. Your ex-husband was a real piece of shit. Emotionally abusive. What do you put you through after having three ways and four ways? I imagine that emotional abuse wasn't contained to just three ways and four ways. I imagine if your ex-husband was 
such a piece of shit, such a monster, so emotionally abusive that he treated you like that after having a three-way or a four-way that he wasn't particularly kind to you the rest of the time when you guys were just having two ways or just hanging out or just being in a relationship at all. I imagine if you look back at the relationship, you can identify all the ways in which your ex-husband's emotionally abusive garbage was sloshing around in other areas and at other times, not just after those three ways and four ways. I also imagine, I hope, I pray that your current relationship, your current boyfriend is a kind and decent person who treats you well at all times. You know, sometimes there are fights, sometimes there are conflicts. It's not about having a relationship without conflict. It's about having a relationship with someone that can make a good faith effort to meet you where you're at and resolve conflict in a constructive way. Of course, somebody can get angry. Of course, somebody's feelings can get hurt. Sometimes people say things when their feelings are hurt that they regret saying and have to apologize for saying. Is your current boyfriend capable of that? Is he a good and kind and decent person who doesn't abuse you emotionally the way your ex did? Well, then maybe he's a safer person to have a threesome with than your ex was. The only way to find out if your current boyfriend is a safer person to have a threesome with than your ex was is to have a threesome with your current boyfriend. And he would like to have a threesome. Seems to me a little unfair to your current boyfriend that he never get to act on this desire to have a threesome with his current partner because his current partner's previous partner was such a piece of shit. That is not to say you can't have baggage, that you can't have insecurities, that he will have to bear in mind and be considerate of if you agree to go ahead and have a threesome with him. Also seems to me that you're expressing concerns on two tracks here. There's how you worry he might treat you after a threesome. Will he treat you the way your ex-husband treated you after having a threesome? I had a lot of threesomes <laughs> with different partners and I've never been treated that way after a threesome. So I think, I hope, I pray that your ex-husband is an outlier there. That is not to say that jealousy can't be sparked in a threesome. I'm always warning people who are about to have their first threesome to brace themselves. You know, if you project yourself into the moment and, you know, if your partner really gets into the other person and they kind of get carried away and it becomes a twosome briefly and you imagine getting very upset about that, well, then maybe threesomes aren't for you because twosomes as three people roll around sometimes break out. It sometimes becomes a twosome connection for a moment while the third person is on the outside. The third person needs to be empowered to say, hey, can you guys pull me back in here? Without a lot of hurt feelings, hopefully without feelings getting hurt. So if your partner can address your insecurities and offer you assurances before your first threesome and then is a good and decent and kind person after it, well, okay, well, then you'll have a positive threesome experience to balance out all those negative ones that your ex-husband inflicted on you. And because you're adults and you're talking Address the subject as you continue to address. You've already addressed the subject of his potential jealousy in the moment. You know, he's never had a serious boyfriend. So this is tricky. What he's asking for, which is to see his first very serious boyfriend, this man he loves, interacting sexually with someone else. Is that something that he's sure he can handle? There's a way to test that, which is – not to have a threesome the first time you have a threesome, by which I mean not to have 
full sex the first time you have a threesome. Maybe the first time you mess around with another guy is just some rolling around and some J.O. Maybe. No oral, no anal. Just keep it really Boy Scouts, as they used to call it, rolling around and jacking off. And then see if he can handle that, if he's into that, if that was an enjoyable, pleasurable experience, then the next time you have a threesome, oral, add oral. And then if that goes well and he's treating you kindly and is grateful to you for having these experiences that he's enjoying and he's not being jealous or hurt, then maybe you can toss in some anal the third time you two have a threesome. Hi there, Dan. 26-year-old person here from England. Um, although I'm currently living in Germany uh, to escape the screaming shit show that is Brexit. My question to you is, um, I was trawling through Craigslist a little while ago, because it's such a fantastic resource for the weird and wonderful of humanity. And I came across this um, advert of this person who wanted to be trained as a human dog. And that kind of piqued my interest. For me, it's not really a sexual thing. It's just more of a... I just find it fascinating what people are into and what kind of gets them off. And if I can help to provide someone with that kind of service, I'd be more than happy to. I, yeah, I've had very little, well, I've had no experience in doing this before. I mean, I've trained, you know, regular four-legged dogs, uh, but never human dogs. Yeah, we, we've been emailing backwards and forwards a little bit, and we are going to have a meeting in a week or two to sit down and discuss exactly what it is they're looking for in a trainer, what I can provide. And yeah, I just wanted to hear from you and also hear from your listeners. If anyone has got any experience in either being a human dog or being a trainer, what is looked for, you know, what's the kind of do's and don'ts, what's the etiquette surrounding it all, and what 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 can I do to make a fun experience and give this person a place to act out their deep held fantasy of being trained as a good girl joining me by phone to help tackle this question amp summers co-host of what's the safe word a kink and sex education youtube channel hey amp welcome back to the show it's been forever hey dan how's it going i know uh crazy times that we've been in. So it's nice to hear your voice. <laughs> it's nice to hear yours too. I, I follow you on Instagram. I watch What's the Safe Words. I always feel like I'm, it's that false intimacy and false sense of connection that social media <laughs> gives you. Where you just feel like you're like keeping up with your friends, but then you realize yeah. it's been years, particularly during the pandemic since we actually spoke. So it's nice to hear your voice. Likewise. Uh, so this caller who is so charming, I'm tempted to take up pup play if this guy will train me. <laughs> Uh, want to know, you know, my rant about pup play or resources or my opinion. And my opinion is, uh, I forget the acronym, your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. This is actually your kink or one of your kinks. Yeah, very much so. It was one of my biggest kinks getting involved in the kink community and still continues to be. Um, and if this guy is looking for other puppies to train, uh, please give me... No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I loved um, just how game they were just right off the bat even even not knowing fully what they're getting into but just like i love dogs i've trained dogs before human dogs i'm down um training so, a human dog has to be a little different than training a dog dog totally but um as someone who's been trained by those that have had pets and dogs and those that just really find it sexy to do like the human puppy play thing um someone that's trained a dog before probably has some really good like inclinations and you know, ideas on how to train someone, whether they've they've gotten into the the play or not. 
And what I really liked about his, his call was just that they weren't even really aware or sure if it was sexual or not, but they were still really engaged and seemed excited. And I think that's kind of a good place to start. It's like puppy play isn't always sexual, um, which is totally fine. So, so, so explain that for folks who might have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. If it's not sexual for all, what is it then? What is it about pup play that attracts people who are into it for whatever it is on its own, but also the sexual element or the kink element, but all, yeah. and those who are just into the role play without necessarily the boners? Sure. I mean, bones can always be involved whether they're a boner <laughs> or not. <laughs> but like, I think like anything we do that we enjoy, what brings people to puppy play is that it, it's fun. It is one of the most fun, but not like dark and brooding kinks. You know, you think of kink and usually the first place people go is like chains and whips minus the Rihanna. Mm-hmm. But with puppy play, it's very much it's it, like it's right there in the name. It's about play. So people are attracted to it because it's fun. It's it's like wrestling, you know, with with other humans, but just in a headspace and never involves actual dogs. You know, that's rule one. It's all about the role play. And it's just it just it's fun. It's that good entry level kink for people that want to get into kink, but don't want to get into the the pain or the 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 dark like scary dungeons right away. Mm-hmm. I've heard it described as you know one of the things that's attractive about pup play for some folks is that it's you know discipline. You discipline a puppy, but you also lavish affection on a puppy. So it's some of yeah. like what BDSM is about, but mixed in with not an equal amount, probably a much greater amount of affectionate attention. Absolutely. And it's it's one of the kinks that you just don't take yourself too seriously. And I think that's why it just is so welcoming. You get a lot of people that are into like the, the nerd culture, the cosplay, the superheroes are also into puppy play, or just people that really love dogs. And people that love dogs, Dan, I, I'm pretty sure you you know, love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. he, he's, he's coming from a good place, I think. Um, and... I really appreciate that. From there the is call. a different version of pup play that I've heard some folks talk about, which and call it whip dog, where it's more about dehumanizing and almost more exciting to do with someone, where it's about mm. the degradation of reducing them to an animal. But that's different somehow than pup play. So I think that there's always that overlap of people that are there for the discipline and people that are there for the fun. And so, like the the whip dog, or like more of a corporal punishment that goes along with it. Uh, is kind of how it became like popularized at first. Like when I look into the history of puppy play, which I've done far too many times, a lot of people will kind of look towards um, someone within, and I forget which part of the army or which part of uh, the military, but there was a story of someone that was degraded and trained to be an animal. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first example of somebody getting into that play. Obviously it was not for the, the fun and the sexy times, but that's where people kind of derived the, the interest in like training someone to be that kind of animal, whether pain was involved or not. And so you, you see that reference sometimes when people talk about the history but again, as most things with kink, the etymology is really hard to always find that that exact moment. So for this caller, the do's, mm-hmm. the don'ts, the etiquette, what goes into making it a good experience for the person that's approached him about uh, wanting to be trained as a dog? W- what should he bear in mind and what resources are out there for him? 
Sure. Uh, well, I mean, first and foremost, like any kink, communication is key, um, especially considering the the person on the receiving end, the sub in this case, the the puppy can't really communicate probably super well once they get into a, a proper headspace. And headspace is where they've you know gotten into almost that meditative, hypnotic sort of space where they're in the zone, they're in the role play. Um, so communicating what it looks like for the person, what they're looking for, what is what is good, what is bad, what is pleasure, is there sex involved? Like that's where he's going to knock out a bunch of those kinks, pun intended, and going to start even more questions from there. So there's a long that's, conversation that he needs to – I mean he says that they've been texting back and forth and emailing back and forth. He needs to – the do's, don'ts. We could assign do's and don'ts, but the person with the best idea of what he should do and should not do – is the person who's approached him by being trained as his dog. Yeah. Well, and and every puppy is going to be different or every dog. So they have this perfect scenario in their mind, I guarantee the puppy in this situation. But they have to just be very upfront and be like, this is what I enjoy. I want to be, maybe they want to be degraded and dehumanized half the time, but then they want to do cuddling and really affectionate aftercare afterwards. Or maybe they want to just put on gear. How do they get into that headspace is going to be very important. And that's why you need to talk about it. Because some people, it's all about gear. Some people, they don't like gear at all. Um, I mean, everyone, as most kinks go, is just very different. The gear is but, very prevalent. You see a lot of pup masks mm-hmm. at uh, leather fetish events, at kink events, especially gay kink events. Um, and it does seem to help a lot of people like enter that space. Like You're not erasing your face. You're putting a different face on, a dog face on, or a pup yeah. face on. I always say dog and I should say pup. <laughs> I mean, there is a distinction. Some people use pup. Some people use dog. Dog is usually like an older puppy that's been in the community for a while. But... <laughs> There's, there's tons of different classifications. Um, but I think to that, like one question that I think is really important to, to puppy play is asking someone like what kind of dog or breed they see themselves as. I think that's very telling of the person's personality, maybe how, how they act within that headspace. Like a husky is going to be very different from like, say, a chihuahua if, if they had that kind of breed in mind, you know? <laughs> and even thinking about that, you probably get like images in your head. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> I think if I was training a Chihuahua, I would want to train it to be a husky. <laughs> well, you know, everyone's got that pre like everyone has that idea of like what kind of dog they'd be if they were into puppy play or not. The number of times I've asked someone, well, if you were into it, like what kind of dog would you be? And everyone thinks for a second, but they've almost always got an answer, you know? Oh my god, I'm 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 blanking. I, I really I have no answer. What kind of dog would I be? Be... I, oh, I bet you, I bet you, <laughs> your partner would probably have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Terry would know. Terry would know. <laughs> Terry just wishes he could train me, but uh, that train has left the station. For for people who aren't familiar with what's a safe word, tell us quickly about it. Sure, um, it's a, a sex and kink uh, education channel um, where we just kind of destigmatize kinks one video at a time. Uh, sometimes it, we cover pop culture and and, and gay stuff, but uh, we just try to make it. Easy and digestible and fun and and quirky, but not scary. We have fun with people and their kinks, not at the expense of their kinks. And it's great. And it's been around for a decade now, right? Oh, I mean, we're like seven years. I oh, think. Okay, sorry about if that. If I look at the count, it's but really it feels it's really like terrific. <laughs> and and I've been a fan of What's a Safe Word since you launched it, and you had me on once as a guest, and that was so much fun. 
Um, and it's a great resource to the caller. I would say it's a great resource if you're curious about pup play. You've done videos that are up on YouTube about pup play, introductions mm-hmm. to pup play, um, good representations of it. So caller, I think the best resource for you is the the person I got on the phone, Amp Summers. Uh, well, thank you, Dan. And we'd love to have you back when all this craziness is over. If you if you got any questions, though, I'm I'm available on social media always. Um, but but I do want to just mention real quick about resources. As far as if they're looking to do more homework themselves, it's more than just a 10 minute YouTube video. There are two really good books. Uh, one is called Bark, and that is by Justin St. Clair. And another is called Woof. I know that these are both dog sounds. I swear they are books. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both available on Amazon. And they're they're really good in-depth sorts of things that give you like ideas for scenes and scenarios, but also give you a little bit of a history and just a really good uh, foundation. So go forth and educate yourself. Amp Summers, co-host of What's the Safe Word at Kink and Education YouTube channel. Hey, Amp, thank you so much uh, for coming back on. And I look forward to seeing you at a big kink event soon. Likewise, Dan. Be well. I'll talk to you later. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer non-binary person married to another queer non-binary person. I just had a quick question for you. So we're married. We have a really good sex life. Very happy. And I, we have two little kids, so I don't really have the time or energy to want to open a relationship right now. But when we got married, my partner basically just said, like, I know you. You'll do what you need to do. Um, when I asked about you know, if we'll always, you know, just be in a monogamous relationship or, you know, whatever, whatever. And they just sort of said, you'll do you. I'm not your keeper. And so I figured, okay, well, I guess we could touch base on it later if I wanted to do that. I don't really have a desire to. And then we were talking about it a few weeks ago. And they said sort of the same thing. Like, I know you, like, I'm not trying to control you. And like, you'll do what you have to do. And and so my question is, am I in a do not, don't, like, don't, don't ask, don't tell sort of relationship where I have kind of permission to do that? Or is this a topic we need to discuss further? If you have to ask whether your relationship is open or not, it probably isn't open. That said, what your partner told you when you two married seems pretty clear. They didn't have an expectation that the relationship the marriage, would be monogamous eternally. At some point, you're going to mess around with somebody else and your partner was telling you in advance that that was okay. There's nothing in what you said, how you described the way your partner talked about this that indicated your partner would prefer not to know, would prefer not to you know, enter negotiations, would prefer never to be told. That's really what a DADT arrangement is about. Whatever happens, happens I don't want to know about it. Don't tell me. Don't tell me verbally, but also don't send nonverbal cues. Don't tell me by showing me or being sloppy or leaving evidence around. So I think you should revisit the conversation. The the tricky subject is you have two little kids. Your partner is going to assume if you're raising the subject now after all this time that there's somebody on the horizon or somebody a little closer than that that you would like to sleep with now. And so you're revisiting it now. So I think you're going to have to get in front of that. You have to reassure your partner that you just want some clarity here going forward. You've got two small kids. You've got a lot on your plates. You're not interested in pursuing anything outside at the moment. But you have this conversation right before you get married. You want to revisit that conversation so that you have some clarity. And in that clarity, some 
sense of what's expected of you, some sense of what's allowed or not allowed. Because you don't want to fly blindly into sleeping with somebody else based on what your partner told you right before you got married, only to discover after you get caught that your partner feels differently now about you sleeping with somebody else, maybe because you have two small kids at home. Clarity now, when there's no desire to sleep with anybody else, will make, if indeed a moment comes when you do sleep with somebody else, less of a threat. It'll make that moment less of a threat to your family, to your marriage, than it would be if you just ran with what your partner said then. That would There would be a risk built into that. That would be a little bit of bad judgment right there. And I don't think that you should commit that act of bad judgment. So tell your partner, there's nobody you want to sleep with on the planet right now but them. But you want to talk about this. You think it's a good time to talk about it. When neither of you is pursuing anyone else or interested in anyone else, now is the time for you to revisit this issue that they raised right before your wedding so that when the time comes, if an opportunity should present itself in the future, you know whether or not you're allowed to act on that. And your partner will know whether or not they're allowed to act on a similar opportunity. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. My sister just built a house next to a gay couple and her daughter has a second story window that looks out into the gay couple's backyard. I myself am a gay man. So she asked me and now here I am asking you about this situation. And the daughter can see her five-year-old daughter can see into this couple's hot tub which has some rubber duckies and some floating dicks out of her window. So my sister is not quite sure what to do. This is their forever home they have just built. I imagine that this is also the gay couple's forever home. And my sister does not know how to approach this. I suggested maybe some frosted glass on her daughter's window, but I don't know that would work. Maybe talking to the couple about getting a gazebo, but we would love to hear what you have to think and how best she can approach the situation in a place where she is going to be living next to these people for likely the rest of all of their lives. Your niece is going to see worse eventually. You know, the kinds of guys who have a hot tub, the kind of gay couple that has a hot tub with rubber duckies and giant floating rubber dicks. I, I imagine these are big floaty dicks. I'm trying to picture the kind of rubber dicks somebody might have floating around in a hot tub. It seems to me that that kind of gay couple probably fucks around in their hot tub or maybe has hot tub parties where groups of guys fuck around in their hot tubs. And if your sister's house is new, if it just went up next door, they may not be aware that the hot tub that was private that couldn't be seen by the neighbors because they didn't have neighbors can now be seen from the new house, from a window that wasn't there when they installed the hot tub and acquired the floating rubber dicks and duckies that populate the hot tub when it's not full of naked gay men. They might need to know that. I would, if I were your sister, just approach them and say, Hey, we're the neighbors. Maybe bring a plate of brownies or cupcakes. Hey, we're the new neighbors. You know, the, our house went up and as it turns out, our daughter's bedroom looks right out. The window looks right out at your hot tub. And so, yeah, just letting you know that you may need to or we may need to install some sort of privacy screen. A privacy screen that would be, ironically, erected to protect their privacy as well. I'm sure your sister doesn't want her five-year-old watching gay men mess around in a hot tub full of dicks 
any more than that gay couple wants to be observed by a five-year-old when they're messing around in their hot tub full of dicks. So the privacy screen isn't about shaming them. Hopefully they won't react to it that way. It's just about this new reality. A house went up next door. There's a window where there didn't used to be a window. And there's a child where there didn't used to be a child. And a hot tub that was, until this house went up, private is no longer private. And something's going to have to be done. And we as neighbors, let's figure that out together. That's not your sister saying you can't have dicks in your hot tub. That's not your sister saying you can't have sex in your hot tub. You have dicks in your hot tub. I have a five-year-old in my house. How do we live together side by side with your privacy protected and your right to fuck around like gay men in a hot tub when you want to and my daughter's privacy respected too? Oh, hi. I am a 50-year-old cisgendered female. I've been married for about, uh, we're going to be celebrating our 25th anniversary coming up. And I love my husband tremendously, but I have a problem. (laughs) And it's getting more and more significant. So about five years into our marriage, he started only in the bedroom talking a little bit about this sort of preoccupation um, with an ex-boyfriend of mine, which was actually a pretty insignificant relationship, but in his mind, it was much bigger than it was. And it's since turned into sort of an obsession. And now, you know, 25 years later, it comes up constantly in the bedroom. And this fantasy for me to connect with him and then tell him all about it, this fantasy for me to connect with other men um, and tell him all about it. This isn't going to work for me. It's not who I am. And and I've been playing into the fantasy, but I feel like the, the like it's kind of the, the lines are getting blurred. I, I don't know if I'm creating a situation where he actually thinks it's going to happen. It's not. And I don't know if I should have that conversation with him about this is not happening, this is a fantasy, versus just continuing with the fantasy. And I hope you can help me because I love him so much. But uh, this is really becoming a big, big issue in our relationship. You say this is becoming a big issue in your relationship, but I get the impression that your husband isn't aware that it has become a big issue in the relationship because you haven't expressed that to him. This dirty talk about your ex-boyfriend, about other men, obviously he has a cuckold kink. He has a fantasy about his wife getting with an ex, getting with other men. And you've played along, you've humored him, you've indulged him in this dirty talk, in these fantasy scenarios during sex, and it's just grown and grown and grown. And now it probably dominates your sex life, even though it's never going to happen. And he hasn't, from the sounds of things, he hasn't pressured you to to do it. He hasn't told you to go do it. He hasn't expressed anger or frustration that you haven't done anything about connecting with this ex. I assume that if he had, you would have mentioned that that would be part of what was distressing you about this whole thing. So my impression is that the dirty talk has just become oppressive that you can't have sex with your husband without all these other imaginary men, including your ex-boyfriend who's not an imaginary person, but any connection with him in the future is strictly imaginary with all these other imaginary men crowding into the room. And it's becoming or it has become or is in danger of becoming a real libido killer for you. 
You need to tell that to your husband. It's not just that you want to tell him that this is never going to happen. And you do need to tell him that. You need clarity about that. You may be surprised. You may go to him and say, look, we've been doing this dirty talk for 20 years. I haven't sought sex elsewhere with other men in those two decades. Just to be clear, for my own sake, I just want to throw this on the table. That's never going to happen. You may be surprised. He may say, oh, I know it's never going to happen. He may not even want it to happen. He just likes to fantasize about it. Then you need to have a conversation about how oppressive the fantasy has become, how it consumes your sex life. And you can't have sex with him without engaging in this dirty talk about this thing that's not a turn on for you in particular and also is never going to happen because it's not who you are and you're not interested in doing it. And then come to some terms like this dirty talk works for your husband. He can think these thoughts when you two are having sex. He can unspool this fantasy in his own head when you're having sex and maybe once every fourth time, fifth time, 12th time, figure out the number that works for you. You will go there with him. You will engage in this kind of fantasy scenario, role play, dirty talk, whatever you want to call it because it gets him off and it gives him pleasure and you want to give him pleasure, but you don't want to be forced to recite a script every single time you have sex about a scenario about behavior that you're never going to engage in and that you're not particularly interested in and that doesn't particularly turn you on. And then let the chips fall where they may. He may sulk. He may pout. He may be hurt. He may be upset a little bit. He may even wind up having performance issues. It may have become so central to, you know, maybe something that he just absolutely positively needs to hear to get off, in which case he's going to have to, Cultivate the skill of saying it to himself inside his own head while you two are having sex. And then every once in a while, indulge him. Particularly if you're rewarding him for good behavior because he's not pressuring you, A, to do this. And I assume he's not. You would have mentioned that. And B, he can pivot to not bringing this up every single time you two have sex. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old trans woman from New Hampshire. My partner and I are planning on getting married at some point post-COVID. To remember the occasion, we're doing two nice dinners out with our respective families. Neither of us want a big traditional celebration. I have a great relationship with my half-brother and would love for him to attend our wedding dinner. He's really important to me. But he's 13, so he lives with my dad and my stepmom, and I'd likely have to invite all three of them together as a package. I have essentially no relationship with my stepmom. We're on amicable speaking terms when together, but otherwise don't really interact. My father's the problem. We have a tenuous relationship, primarily due to my gender transition. Before I transitioned, we were on better terms. I also think he was a bit easier to be around. Nowadays, I talk to him as little as possible, only holidays, birthday calls, and occasional text messages to share things we both enjoy. He's difficult to talk to for too long before his bad politics and conspiracy theories will crop up. I visit occasionally, but primarily to see my half-brother. My dad is allergic to personal conversations, and I've tried to breach the topic of gender on a couple of occasions, but it didn't go well. Still, I've been patient and tried to give him some time, over three years now, to get used to things on his own terms. I've heard that when my half-brother calls me sister, my dad and stepmother are both still awkward about it. Aside from that, I have no real pulse on their comfort level with me, since I don't visit often. Here's my concern. I'm afraid not inviting my dad will kill what's left of our relationship, and also prevent my half-brother from being there. This dinner is an opportunity to involve my dad in an important part of my life for the first time in a while and serve as a foundation for maybe rebuilding things. 
At the same time, it's my dinner, and it's supposed to be a great time for me because I'm the one getting married. I don't want to be stuck at a table with someone who will make the experience uncomfortable, not only for myself, but also for my mother and her husband. What should I do? Should I ask him up front if he's comfy being around me as a woman before bringing up the context of dinner? I don't want him to feel pressured into attending the event and hiding his discomfort. Or should I instead be up front and invite him with like strict ground rules, don't dead name me, polite conversation only, etc.? Or should I abandon the cause entirely and have the dinner without my half-brother? If my father's not comfortable, is there anything I could do to try and get my half-brother to attend without his parents? I'd like my dad to be comfortable if he does attend, because it's supposed to be a cheerful and memorable moment for everyone, but I'm not going to compromise everyone else's enjoyment to make that happen. How should I approach the situation? I don't think you can invite a 13-year-old to a wedding or a dinner party or wedding dinner out in a restaurant, a nice fancy one for family, without inviting that 13-year-old's parents. So I think you need to... I don't know why I said parents like that, but parents. So I think you need to set that option aside, somehow finding out if you can finagle a way to get your half-brother to this dinner without your dad and your stepmom coming, which leaves the other two options you tossed out, which both involve being upfront with your dad. Be upfront, ask him if he's comfortable being around you as a woman. And your other option was be upfront and invite him, but lay down strict ground rules like no dead naming you, and no talking politics. seems to me that you don't have to choose between those. I think that you should run with both of those options. You should be upfront with your dad to tell him you really do want to invite him to this party to celebrate your wedding, but you don't want to put him on the spot. You don't want to make him uncomfortable. You also don't want all of your other friends and family to be made to feel uncomfortable if he starts dead naming you or throwing out conspiracy theories or talking about, I guess, Donald fucking Trump. That's always the issue now when it comes to political disagreements. And so ask him. And it's not just about sparing you the grief of having your father there, but sparing your father potentially the grief of coming if it's not something that he would enjoy. And then have a conversation with him. Look, Dad, I'd like you to be there. I don't want you to come if you're going to insult me at my own wedding by deadnaming me or using the wrong pronouns. And I don't want you to put other people who love me and accept me on the spot because they're going to feel obligated to intervene at that moment on my behalf. And ugh, nobody wants that. So dad, what's it going to be? Hopefully your dad will suck it up and come. Hopefully he'll promise you that he will not dead name you and that he will respect what you want at the wedding and not make a scene at the wedding by dragging people into conversations about politics or conspiracy theories that they don't want to have. And I hope he does come. There's a risk, of course, there's a risk he'll come and he'll say the wrong thing, not out of malice, but just out of ignorance or sloppiness or stupidity. And there may be a moment, but your dad will also at this dinner be surrounded by people who will be modeling a different kind of behavior for him and a different degree of acceptance for you. Right now, it's just your 13-year-old half-brother who's modeling accepting you and accepting your transition for your dad and your stepmom. Imagine the difference it could make if your dad and stepmom spend a whole evening seeing you through the eyes of other friends and family members who love and accept you. That can make a big difference. It does involve a degree of risk. Your dad could come and make a scene and screw it up. I would if I were you and it's a big dinner, 15, 20 people at one of the dinners, at the one dinner you want to invite your dad to, there's another dinner. So you're only risking half of your wedding celebrations on your dad's presence. Deputize some people to run interference. 
if interference is required, but hopefully interference won't be required. And hopefully your dad, despite the people he votes for and the conspiracy theories he believes in and the foot dragging he's done about accepting your gender transition, hopefully your dad can mind his manners, can respect that this is your day and not make it about him or any lingering issues he might have with your gender transition and show up and celebrate with you and celebrate with others who love and accept you and maybe learn a little bit from them. And finally, I want to say just for my own part, because I always say this, I say this to everybody who is under 25 or 28 who calls in and says they're going to get married. You're too young. That doesn't mean you can't be engaged. doesn't mean you can't make a plan. It doesn't mean that I'm always right. There are people out there who marry young and marry successfully. You could be one of those people. But there's a whole mountain of social research that shows that people who marry younger, those marriages tend not to, quote unquote, be successful. I think both people can survive a marriage, get out of a marriage alive, and it can still have been a success. But the metric most people use when they're assessing whether a marriage is going to be successful or not is staying together for the rest of their lives. If that's your metric of success, caller, I would encourage you to extend the engagement maybe a little past the end of the pandemic, just another year or two. Hey, Dan, straight, cis, white, heterosexual male asking a question about gay sex. In a season of The Other Two, I think the finale, two gay men discuss which of them shall eat because they might have sex later, who will have pizza and who will not. And if their first time that they might do that and their conversation about pizza becomes a conversation about who might top and who might bottom. But for an ignorant straight man, I guess I'm asking, is this the preparation needed for gay anal sex? Uh, it doesn't seem to me that in the straight world we are so concerned. It's a good scene and played well by two actors and glad to see it in somewhat more mainstream TV. But is it true? Is it true? Well, yeah, in the sense that there are some folks out there, particularly common, it seems, these days among gay men. It seems to have taken root in the gay top-bottom discourse that the bottom might have to eat light or skip a meal entirely if he wants to get fucked later that night. So it's true that that does happen, but it's not common. And I don't think it's true to all gay men who are about to bottom or contemplating bottoming. The other two is a comedy. That's really kind of a comedic exaggeration. It's a satire of how gay men might negotiate their first sexual encounter. Um, the other two is terrific. It's hilariously funny. The second season is out. A third season, thank God, I'm loving it so much. A third season is coming, created by Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. If you're not already watching it, you should go watch it. Maybe if we all pour in and watch season two and season three, we will get, fingers crossed, a season four. You know, it used to be that you know, when it came to anal sex and gay dudes, you just kind of took your best guess about whether you were good to go, whether you knew yourself well enough to be able to predict whether you were empty, free and clear. Then douching kind of became really routine, really common. And now, because gay men can't seem to do anything without taking it to an extreme, people aren't only douching the rear end, they're kind of douching the front end by avoiding a meal before they're going to have anal sex. Now, I'm a proponent of fuck first because it can be uncomfortable to have 
really slamming sex, rolling around top or bottom if you're full, if you just ate. I think that's particularly true if you're bottoming and you're full, you just ate. It can be perhaps a little bit more uncomfortable. I actually think a meal right before sex is a bigger problem for oral than anal. The risk isn't that, you know, if you have pizza at dinner and then an hour later you're getting your ass reamed, you're going to get pizza all over somebody's dick. But if you have pizza at dinner and an hour later you're choking down somebody's dick, the odds that you might get pizza all over their lap, all over their dick, really high during oral, much less so during anal. Seems to me to be a belt and suspenders kind of precaution, not just cleaning out the rear end, but making sure the front end is also empty. But yeah, it's true in that some gay men are out there doing this. Also, there are lots of gay men out there who aren't doing this. And some gay men like Chris Kelly, who co-created the other two, are on television joking about it, creating sitcoms where gay characters are fully versed in what it means to be a gay man in America right now and making jokes like this. Jokes with a kernel of truth, jokes that may confuse straight people like you, caller, who are having anal sex without skipping meals. Not something we're all doing, but yeah, something some of us are doing. And the other two sent those guys up in that joke, in that episode that you watched. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Archie Visionary tweets, once again, Savage Lovecast whiffs it on an aromantic question. Ugh, Dan, please learn about arrows. Some of us do want to be in relationships even if we can't love our partner. Close, intimate relationships don't require love, and you've probably fucked that caller over. All right, I'm a little confused by that tweet, but I reached out and asked Archie to recommend someone from the Eros community who can come on the show and explain it all to me. That'll be hopefully on an upcoming episode. Just by opinion tweets. Thanks at fake Dan Savage for introducing us to Justin Lay Miller on the Savage Lovecast this week. His sex and psychology podcast is a true gem just like yours, Dan. I highly recommend his episode, What We Got Wrong About Bisexuality, a great treat for many of my fellow bisexual friends. And finally, Zach Hempel tweets, come on, Dan Savage. The answer to the question, is the 69 position still a thing amongst couples, is yes. Dan, how can you deny the ongoing existence of this very fun, though not always practical, activity? Well, I think the poll was flawed. My only options were yes, 69ing exists, and no, 69ing does not exist. Obviously, 69ing exists. People do it. I voted no because... People shouldn't. And most couples, in my experience, eventually don't. Even if two people did it when they first met, 69ing really does tend to fall off the menu pretty quickly. Seems to me it's something people tend to do with strangers or near strangers when both parties are overwhelmed with lust and taking turns isn't practical because neither wants to wait their turn. The longer two people are together, the less frantic the sex becomes. Sex can still be good. It's just a different kind of good. And the less frantic sex becomes, the less likely two people are to awkwardly inhale each other's junk at the exact same time. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, this is a comment on episode 782 for the inexperienced bisexual woman in a relationship with a man. I have a comment to both Dan and the caller. Dan, it felt really flippant of how you talked about the legitimate struggles of bisexual women in the dating pool. 
I'm a fellow bisexual woman living in a similarly lefty part of the West Coast as the caller, and I have had many queer and lesbian women outright tell me that they would never date me or have sex with me because I fuck men, too. It is hard to date women as a bi woman, especially if you're inexperienced, and I think the caller needs to be realistic about the pushback that they're going to get from other queer women. Now, that said, to the caller... There's a ton of bi women in the dating pool, Dan is right, but it's also not a great experience for single bi women to be your experiment while your boyfriend looms in the background making sure that you aren't too gay without him. If your boyfriend's concerned with your sexuality and the possibility of y'all being open, which you would be if you're having sex with other people, you need to run away. You even said that you need longer-term intimacy and trust to be sexual with someone, which your boyfriend is outright ignoring because he doesn't like the thought of sharing you with someone else. You'll never get the validation of your sexuality that you want and need with someone like that. And quite frankly, it's a huge red flag to other women who will want to date and fuck you. So in my opinion, dump the motherfucker already. Hey, Dan, calling the recent podcast about the, about the guy whose partner blamed her lack of desire in his pot use. Uh, you know, that, that sort of got me thinking that uh, sort of maybe asking callers you know, if, to clarify if uh, pot use is an issue in the relationship, they should you know, make it clear whether we're talking about smoking, whether we're talking about edibles, vaping, etc. Because like I myself, like I don't partake. I've got no problem with pot. It's just not for me personally. You know, I would not mind dating somebody who who took edibles, you know, or possibly even vaped. But but pot smoke itself would be an absolute deal breaker for me. And I think that's actually a very relevant, very important detail. You know, when somebody talks about cigarettes, you know, you know what they're you know what you know the effects they're talking about. But if someone just says, you know, I use pot regularly, you know, then I, I can't help but wonder, okay, well, are you just doing gummies? Are you smoking up and and you know, somebody else living in the apartment has to smell that? I, I think it's a very relevant detail and I I think it'd be nice if callers would specify when that when that comes up. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. This is the response to the woman in episode 782 who was wondering if she was being too judgy when she hesitated to go out with somebody who has only recently been vaccinated. I agree with everything you said about poor judgment, but I think you missed the part where she insisted she's in the Bay Area. Global vaccine distribution has not been equitable and still is not. Lots of people travel for work and, for, like me, were stranded in countries where vaccines were not available until recently. I didn't get vaccinated until August of this year when I was finally able to go back to the United States. I live in a country where, until very recently, the only vaccine available was Sinopharm. I know a lot of people here who have reservations about Sinopharm that they wouldn't about a vaccine that is approved for distribution in the United States. So I think she should also ask him if... There is some reason that he was in a country where it was not possible for him to get vaccinated until recently. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I whiffed on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer those voice memos. The sound quality is better, but we swing both ways. Hump 2021 will be wrapping up its tour in November in Washington, D.C., Albuquerque, Tucson, Olympia, Washington, and Philadelphia. Grab a ticket now at humpfilmfest.com. And speaking of hump, the deadline to submit to the 2022 Hump Film Festival is coming right up December 8th. So now is the time 
to grab some friends and make your own amateur porn film. Go to humpfilmfest.com for all the info you need about attending a screening or submitting your own film. And a reminder, my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now, so grab a copy anywhere books are sold. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Pup Amp on Twitter at Pup Amp. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech heavy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.